This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Here's what I know when it comes to marriage right now. The world is discipling our marriages. The world is discipling our kids about marriage. It's Netflix. It's TikTok. The, the amount of comedians that are so excited that I'm not married and you know, bragging about the sin in their lives. We have that option. And if we don't say anything about that as a church, if we're silent about that as a church, then we are saying a lot by saying nothing at all. And one of the things the Lord convicted me of in the last year was that I'm very willing to speak out in favor of uh, the institution of marriage. I'm very willing to speak out about sexuality as it relates to the, the nation and our values and our morals. And the conviction was we also have to do that in our own lives and in our own homes and in our own marriages. Because it's easy to yell and, and, to, and to be courageous when it comes to telling the truth when it doesn't involve me personally, right? The courage is now in our own marriages, in our own lives, in our own families, and that's what it takes. And I've invited friends that have exampled, exampled, is that a verb? Been an example of courage that, I mean, I want to be like Bob when I grow up, the amount of courage that Bob has displayed. And I love Bob and Dana both in the ministry that they have uh, had in these last few years and the ministry that God, maybe not one they wanted, but it's one that they were given uh, to fight for marriages because they have been an example of how God can redeem a marriage in their own lives. And they want to share that with us here tonight. So would you guys welcome Bob and Dana Gresh? Well, thanks for having us. This morning, I <clears throat> had a couple objectives, and one, what my big one was to get here without wrinkling my shirt with a safety seatbelt, and I failed at that. Tonight, my objective is just not to have too many cheeseburger stains on it after sleeping in the recliner in the same shirt, so yeah, I did. Okay, so I, I wanted to say that we travel a lot in different places and get into different churches, and I've watched this church almost since the beginning, and... Um, we brag about this church everywhere, and uh, if there's any church that we love coming to, this is the one. I watch the live stream sometimes when I don't go to our church, and this is the one I choose, and so I really appreciate. It's an honor to be here because I, you guys are serious, you're warriors, and um, it's a thank you for having us today, so it was, it's nice to be here. Um, Bob and I... Are, well, we've been married, how many years have we been married? 34. Okay, I forget numbers. 34, you're supposed to clap for that because I think that's, we made it that far. So, um, but when we started out, we, we are two very type A people and we found out that we were a pretty high conflict couple. Now, let me try to explain what that means. Um, one kind of epic memory that we have is I had come home from speaking for about a week and left my husband with children who had existed on Fruit Loops for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Are we going to change the names in the story? So No. I left them with Bob Gresh and he fed them Fruit Loops for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And and you know how the house kind of looks, ladies, after we've been gone for a few days. I mean, that's not, right? Am I? mm Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. 
Um, so I thought, you know, my children need nutrition and I need something that's going to keep me from saying what I'm really thinking. So I made a meatloaf stuffed with cheese, wrapped in bacon, smothered in barbecue sauce. Oh yes, praise the Lord. And I sat my family down to this steaming meal with mashed potatoes, corn, blueberry muffins. And right about the time I was about to put this wonderful bite of cheese stuffed, you look guilty, cheese stuffed meatloaf wrapped in bacon and smothered in barbecue sauce to my mouth, my husband thought it was a good opportunity to point out that there was a lot of laundry in a pile in the corner of the kitchen that needed to be done. I dispute certain portions of this. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know how it exactly... Now, what happened next is kind of debatable exactly how it happened, but what we do know for certain is that the meatloaf on my plate was suddenly veering towards my husband's face. And the worst part is I missed. It was kind of like a George Bush thing when they threw that shoe at him and he went like this. <laughs> and so after that happened, the family kind of sat there like... I mean, my children happened? were shocked. I did what any emotionally wealthy woman who just thrown meatloaf at her husband would do. I ran to the bathroom to cry. Now, that's when my husband kind of became my hero because he followed me to the bathroom, very brave man, and opened the door and then leaned over and kind of offered me his hand, almost as if he were asking me to dance and said, baby, this is going to be one of our kids' worst memories or one of the funniest. I'm up for number two. What about you? And, and then he escorted me back to the kitchen table, sat me in my chair, pushed my seat in as if I were a lady, and um, did a comedy routine that I still believe deserves to be on late night television and rescued the whole thing. We've learned not to go nuclear as much as we used to. We're, we're, we've settled down a lot. But in the beginning, we were, we were kind of, we could be, you know... Intense. Intense. And um, I remember one time, I'm a, you know, I was very laid back. And so I, Dana was upset one day and um, she was slamming a door, slamming a few doors. And I said, sweetheart, and I did say in this voice, if you keep slamming doors, I'm going to take them off the hinges. <laughs> And she was like, slammed the door. And so I got a little hammer and a screwdriver. And I just took them off the hinges. And I just <laughs> laid them around the house. And we don't do that a lot anymore. The doors no. stay on the hinges. They so do. And so do we. We stay on the hinges. <laughs> um, God has turned us from a high-conflict couple. We're still very type A. We still have a lot of conversations um, into a high-impact couple. And if you need that hope in your marriage, I hope that we download a, bit, a little bit of it to you tonight. I want to share you, with you three things that I think are really important. One is that God created you to experience intimacy. Two is that sin dismantles that intimacy. And three is that radical vulnerability is the open door that's an invitation back into that intimate experience. Um, I've been talking about the subject of sexuality for about 20 years now, and it wasn't an assignment I would have chosen, but I've learned some really interesting things about intimacy through the years. And when I watch the news feed, I'm always kind of looking for intimacy experiments is what I call them. And about 10 years ago, I saw one. It was an artist in New York City who had a really unique art display. It was just her sitting in a chair and she invited anybody that walked by to sit in a chair across from her 
to gaze into her eyes. They wouldn't say anything, and they would just see what happened. Well, what happened was this. People would sit there for as long as they wanted to. Average time was 30 minutes. And during that time, they reported feeling something they had never felt before in their lives. And they tried to describe it through tears, and they would say it felt like love and connection. Well, what they were experiencing was intimacy. But what's really sad is that they had never experienced it before. God didn't create us to experience intimacy with an artist that we have never met before, but he did create us to experience intimacy with him. And the picture that he gives us on the planet of that intimacy is marriage. He wants you to experience a deep love and a deep connection in your marriage relationship, your marriage relationship that you have today or the one that you will have one day. And um, I, when I started teaching about sexuality, I learned something really interesting about that, this concept of intimacy. It's probably the most interesting fact I've ever learned from the scriptures as I've studied them. And it talks about this. It was, it was about 20 years ago. I had written my first book and I had begun being asked to speak. And I'm an introvert. Any introverts out there feel my pain when I say the last thing I wanted to do was ever speak. I wanted to write the book, but I certainly didn't want to talk about it in front of people. But my friend Troy Van Leer said, if you don't travel and speak, you're never going to sell the book. I was like, that is a bummer but I will never speak in front of a live audience ever. Uh, that didn't work out, but I did pray. I said, God, you've got to give me courage. So on this subject of intimacy and sexuality, if there's something in the scriptures that you could just blow me away so that I'm motivated to do what you're asking me to do. And that particular year um, in January, on January 1st, I had made a decision. I'm going to read through the Bible cover to cover. I've never done that before, and I want to I experience it in its, in its totality. Well, by April 1st, I was flying to um, Atlanta for a speaking engagement, and by that date in April, I had already made my way to Genesis chapter 4 in my Bible reading plan. Amazing. I am a speed reader. And so um, I read one verse that day on the plane, and it was the answer to the cry of my heart for God to blow me away with his truth about sex. I read this um, in the NIV. It said something like this, Genesis 4.1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth. Now, I sat there thinking for just a moment. I slapped my Bible shut, and I thought, dude was so not just laying there. It's a very bad translation. And so when I got off the plane, I did a little bit of research, and I discovered that the Hebrew language there used the word yada. Adam yada his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth. Now ask me what the word yada means. Well, I'd love to tell you. It means this, the definition, to know, to be known, to be deeply respected. Ah, oh, doesn't that just make you want to lean in and understand it more? That God created sex. He defines sex by a knowing and a deep respect. That's hardly what we ever see portrayed in Hollywood or the media, is it? And it made me want to learn and understand more. So I began read, I, I did finish reading my Bible that year. And as I read through the Old Testament, I would circle every time I saw the word no, and I would look it up to see, is that the word yada? And I found that the word yada is in the Old Testament eight, over 800 times. I thought to myself, that's a lot of yada. I mean, you know what I'm saying? But it's not hardly ever used to describe the intimacy between a husband and wife. 
is predominantly used to describe the intimacy that we can know with God. In verses like Psalm 46.10, where it says, be still and know, yada, that I am God. God wants to know and be known by you. He wants to know you and be known by you. And he wants that relationship. Can you fathom this? To be a relationship of deep respect. And he wants our marriages to be a picture of that. Now, as I've taught through the years, as you can imagine, as much as I didn't really want the assignment of teaching about sex 25 years ago, I really am uncomfortable with it more recently. The conversation has become more and more difficult, even inside the church walls. And one of the questions I get quite frequently is, well, um, uh, why then do Christians, if God's supposed to create this knowing and this deep respect in the concept of sex, then why then do so many Christians feel bad when they have it? And I, of course, understood that in a deep level because I was 15 when I had sex for the first time. And instead of feeling deeply connected to my boyfriend, I felt deeply lonely. And I I didn't really understand that at the time, but I do now. And I know how to answer that question. And that question comes with a lot of accusations. Accusations like, the reason that you felt disconnected and shamed is because the church has repressed you by its teaching, its legalistic teaching. But the fact is, the most liberal social science backs God's word up when it comes to this. One of the things that was really interesting to me, I love studying social science when it comes to the topic of sex and marriage. And um, we live in the hometown of Penn State University, and there was a study conducted of students who had their first sexual encounter on campus. And women, the next day, reported not feeling connected and... um, and respected, but they used words like duped, used, just horrible words to describe themselves. They felt terrible about themselves. Now, the men didn't. The men felt better about themselves. So I'll get to that in just a second. But these women didn't feel wonderful. Now, here's the thing. I know about this neurochemical. I knew about this neurochemical at the time called oxytocin. Have you ever heard of oxytocin? It is the bonding chemical that washes across our brains when we experience eye contact or skin-to-skin contact. The very first time that we experience it is when we're newborn babies and um, we're being breastfed by our mothers or when our fathers hold us against their chests, and we start to feel like, hey, I think I belong, as little tiny minutes old babies. Well, the most profound download of oxytocin happens at the point of sexual climax. Now, I knew that this chemical makes us feel like we belong. It makes us feel loved and chosen and peaceful. So why were these girls at Penn State feeling something quite opposite? And why did I, as a 15-year-old girl, feel lonely? Well, there's a study out of the University of California that said this, that outside the context of commitment, our brains as females do not produce oxytocin in quite the same magnificent way as they do when we feel chosen and wanted and committed to. 
Now, here's the interesting thing for men, because you heard me say that the Penn State guys felt pretty good about themselves. Guess what? Over time, that washes away. An Indiana State University study told us, tells us, and this has been replicated many times over, that men with the highest number of sexual encounters and partners in their lives report the lowest level of sexual satisfaction and connection in their lives. And men with the lowest number of sexual partners in their lives report the highest level of sexual satisfaction and connection. God created us to experience intimacy, and that requires, that that intimacy and that joy and that connection requires a respect, and it requires boundaries. So what happens when we don't respect it? Well, God created us for connection but sin disconnects us. I want to read to you a a verse that the Lord really spoke to me about during worship today. Um, It's a verse out of Isaiah. And if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Isaiah 59. And let me just read the first verse to you. It says this about sin. It says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. I want you to hear that. For those of you that are in a pattern of a stronghold or an addiction, God's hand is not too short to save you, no matter how deep the pit is. Or his ears dull that it cannot hear. And I want to say this about that. As I was praying over this verse early this morning, I felt like God said, some of you have words that are just stuck in you. Confessions that won't come out to him or to people that you need to confess to. And God, is, his ears are not too dull to even hear those words that are stuck inside of you. He knows that pain that you're feeling. And I love that God says these things in his word before he, sa- he says, I'm, I'm here, my hand to save you, my ear to hear you. And then he says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You know, if you don't feel connected to God, if you don't feel connected to others, one reason quite possibly may be because of the sin that you're not paying attention to and dealing with in your life. I wrote this in my Bible today during worship. God hates sin not because of what we do, but because of what it does to us. And he doesn't want it to do that to you anymore. I know what that shame feels like. I know what that hurt and that pain feels like. And I also know what it likes to be redeemed and healed by Jesus. Um, I want to say this too. One of the reasons why I didn't experience the connection that God meant for me to experience in the confines of a marriage relationship with my husband was because when I was a teenager and I carelessly treated sex the way that I did, I wasn't experiencing sex the way he created it. And God taught me this as I was studying the word yada such a beautiful word, but I came across in Genesis 18, an account where Lot and his daughters are experiencing the most horrific kind of sex, ancestral sex. The daughters, they've just left Sodom and Gomorrah and the daughters are distraught because what value would they have if they didn't create life and, and a legacy for their, for their father? And there's no men around as they're hiding in the mountains. And so they get their father drunk and the Bible says the older daughter went in and lay with her father. And I, I, I recoiled. My stomach was sick. I said, Lord, please don't let this be the word yada. And as I looked it up, it wasn't. It was the word shakab. It's a euphemism for sex. And it basically means to exchange body fluids. Not all sex is the same. 
The world will try to tell you that it is, but not all sex is the same. There is something so high and so holy that when God defines it and describes it, it transcends the physical. But there is a counterfeit for sex. Those things that we experience outside of marriage, the, the hookup, the sexting, the pornography, the masturbation, the adultery, the affairs, the prostitutes, all of that stuff is a counterfeit. It is shakab. And why doesn't it satisfy? Why isn't it, why is it never enough? Because it's not the real thing. So your body's always going to become addicted looking for something that is real. Sin separates. So what do you do when that happens? Well, I know something about separation. I, I felt, I spent a lot of my life feeling separated without intimacy. I, I remember the first time I used porn I saw porn. I was about 12 years old. I was in our attic. We were in an old farmhouse and it had a, kind of these windows that were old and they, were, uh, they weren't clear. They weren't smooth. And I remember the dust coming through those and the heat. And I remember the, the, the things that were in there. <clears throat> and as I talked to men, most men remember their first time too. It's a, almost like a supernatural, I think partially demonic thing that sets sex apart. <clears throat> when I was, when we were married, I was a virgin, um, and, but I wasn't pure. And Dana wasn't a virgin, but she was pure. Because I was still struggling with um, pornography and, and those kinds of things, and the things that, that surround that. I was believing a lot of lies. One was that, um, before that, one was, as a teenager, was that uh, it would go away when I got married. <clears throat> it's kind of a countdown issue, right? So I'm having all these problems. When I get married and it's real, I certainly wouldn't want to, at that point, look at pictures of it or whatever. It makes no sense. It's insane. And then after I got married, it wasn't too long after that that I thought, what is happening here? And that was a really bad moment. And you know what? A lot of you in here have felt that moment of like, oh, I now sowed a lot of, I, I planted a lot of seeds that now we're going to come to, to uh, harvest in a bad way. And the other thing I thought was I was all alone, and I had never talked to anybody about it. Um, I talked to a pastor in college about it, and uh, he was kind of like, he didn't really know what to say. He was like, uh, you know, it's okay, go pray about it or whatever, everybody does it. Um, and it was just kind of an oddball thing. But in my church back then, uh, no one talked about it. It was just flee youthful lust. And, um, and kind of pray it away. And that, that really hasn't worked for me in my life. Um, <clears throat> and it's hurt my faith because in a lot of ways I feel defective. Like, why can't, I, why can't I just get past a lot of this stuff? And Dana will be nice and say, well, I struggle with things too. And I'll be like, what do you struggle with? She's like, well, eating and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, I struggle with that too and this. So it didn't really help me. I needed her to come up with something better, but it... She didn't. Anyway, so um, there is a physiological component to this whole thing with any kind of addiction. And we know more about the brain now than we've ever known. And that is the neuroplasticity of the brain that actually we're creating neural pathways and habits, good habits or bad habits. And these thoughts and these triggers that we, we uh, go through to use pornography or lust or things in a, in a way that God doesn't design, whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever, create these neural pathways like slides, and we can slide right down into that. Most of us 
men or whoever's, you know, it can be women too. It's about, we believe uh, about 70% of men uh, struggle with it in churches uh, that are in church um, in an addictive way, and 29% lie about it. But I think there's um, uh, this very big problem in the church and outside the church. I didn't say this this morning, but it's interesting. As I go through 12-step programs, I go to some 12-step meetings, I'm there with all unbelievers. And I'm like, why? It's interesting that they're here, because I feel like if I wasn't a believer, I, would, I could do whatever I wanted. But they are surrounded in shame, too. It's a natural thing. And so uh, in our brains, when you create these, these slides that take you right down to places fast, um, they have to be undone. They have to be rewired. And, you know, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He knew that. And it's just been till the last few, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, we've realized the mind can be renewed and rewired in, if, through neuroplasticity. But some people think porn will awaken desire in the bedroom. That is not going to work. That does not work. And if a man says that to you and the wife kind of stands there, it's not working. I don't, it's not working. Um, sin separates us, period. It causes shame, period. And if you want to enjoy the yada type of sex, um, you have to push pause on porn. And when I talk about porn in my life, it's not just porn. It's all the other associated things that come with it. It wasn't just that. And um, it had a major effect on Dana, uh, and I could see it happening. Yeah, um, Bob's brain wasn't really healthy. We know that now. We have um, scans of brains that on pornography that look very similar to the scans of a heroin addict. That's how significantly the damage done by pornography can be for anybody that's cyclical and caught in a cycle. And this is a functional image scan. It's not, it's not the, the topography of the brain, but this is how the brain functions because of heroin or porn addiction. But what I didn't know when we were walking all, through all of this is that my brain was being damaged too. Um, about 70% of women who are married to sex addicts or porn addicts experience symptoms of PTSD. That doesn't mean they're diagnosed with PTSD. That means they have symptoms similar to it. They're calling it now betrayal trauma. And um, one of the interesting things is that that beautiful eye contact that can create oxytocin and connection, it goes away when there's shame from addiction. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? That that eye contact just isn't there. And the body starts to read things like that or their lack of presence of a spouse. And it starts to send inflammation signals into the body saying, wake up, something's not right, you're not safe. And if we don't pay attention to those, that turns into chronic illness like um, inflammation in the heart, inflammation in the brain, inflammation in the joints, inflammation in the, in the lungs that can lead to things like asthma and unwellness. And I was experiencing that. They were testing me for everything from lupus to um, Lyme's disease. We were a very unwell couple and all the well pretending that everything was just fine. Yeah, and one of the things that happened was that I could see this happening. There was times when I would act out, and Dana would immediately, at, when I got, you know, at the same sort of time, be like, man, I was feeling great today, and then I just started feeling terrible. I got a headache, and I was like, that happened a lot before I realized, I'm like, this is, 
ridiculous. This is me. And I realized after a while that it was actually bringing that into the house. I, I don't really understand it. You can call it betrayal trauma or PTSD, but it's bringing spiritual calamity into your house from familiar spirits and things that I don't know a lot about. But I saw it happen. I'm a cynic, but I saw it happen. I saw it happen within minutes at times. And once I saw that the one time, I was like, this is crazy. And now, all the equivocation I had, all the things that I said to myself, like, this isn't really hurting her until I tell her. You know, I can work this out. I can get together with men. I can do this or whatever. I can just keep praying this away. When I realized I was bringing that into the house, um, it created a, a whole new set of issues. And in fact, your Candace was here today. And my, my physical therapist was here. She's she moved to this college. area. Yeah. And she was like, well, no wonder you feel so good now. <laughs> she said, I was constantly treating you. and didn't understand why it wasn't working. Yeah. And, and it was, it was mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, and it's, it's science-based. But I, I think that there was a time when, uh, you know, it's easy to tell that part of the testimony. <laughs> Because I've done that a lot. And it's kind of like you can talk about the past and it gets easy. Uh, but, you know, what, what happened next was that uh, this thing keep starting to escalate. And there's a time a few years ago when, uh, well, we had a big family event coming up. And I knew I had to confess to Dana because it was escalating out of my control. And I thought, I can't do this before this event or it's going to be tied to that forever and it's going to mess up everything because I knew it was going to wreck our family and um, I waited it out and that was a really bad period of kind of like a hall pass where you're like okay I'm going to have to confess this anyway and, and that was a bad period and um, there was a time when I had to as this event passed I had to sit down with Dana and we sat in these two red chairs we have in our house and um, I actually snuck a picture of her because I was like, I, I need to take a picture of her before I tell her this because she's never going to look at me the same way. And that's the mode I was in. And when I sat down with her, <laughs> I, I, uh, I said, you know, I don't think I, I can't find my way back to God unless I tell you this, and I don't think I can find my way back to God unless I break your heart. And I did, I broke her heart. I mean, I broke her heart. And um, I transferred all the sludge of all my sin and just blopped it, vomited all over her. And, um, you know, that was a bad day. Uh, and, and after that, uh, you know, we were in ministry and um, my wife is one of the best-selling authors on, you know, Christians and teens and sexuality. And, you know, my 12-step group is like, you're screwed, man. Like, I'm like, yeah, my wife has sold a lot of books on this. And I'm the poster child for the other way. And um, I had to go to my boards and tell them I'd, I had fallen below the level of a leader. And I needed to step, step down for a while. And they took care of me. Um, and I kind of was whisked away. Somebody helped us pay for kind of a 
rehab place that was where all the celebrities went and things, and that, that was not very effective at all. I can tell you, without God, it was not very effective. Um, and what really was effective was coming back home and being radically vulnerable with Dana and with uh, men around me, but particularly with Dana, having rigorous honesty. And at that time, when I was whisked away, she wasn't whisked away. And, you know, we talk about... Uh, you can explain what we say about that, I guess. Well, we, we, in the counseling room, they were asking me, how do you feel in the early days? And I didn't know how to put words to how I felt So I described it that I felt like Bob had driven a car into a tree and we were both bloodied and damaged, but an ambulance came and they triaged us and he was in such serious condition compared to me that they put him on a gurney, they put him in the ambulance and they drove away. And I was left alone sitting in the car bleeding while I listened to that siren kind of fade in the distance and Bob just kind of looked at me during that counseling session and he said, you know what, for the first time in our years of fighting this, we're going to call a second ambulance. And that really was the turning point for us because we found that through radical vulnerability, not just with each other, but with other people, we began to heal. What was the darkest day in our life became the brightest because he got honest with other men and I got honest with women in my life. Women who I was terrified to tell. I'd told them before, oh yeah, my husband struggles a little bit with lust. But this time, within an hour of that red chair confession, I called my friend who's, who belongs to Conduit. She's a member here at Conduit, Donna Van Leer. And I used the words. My husband just confessed to me A, B, C, and D. And that was a turning point in us. And that's very scriptural. Yeah, I don't think I've ever told Troy this, but I was in the car on the way to Phoenix. They picked me up at the airport, and, they, and I was texting Troy. All, I'm like, I need to trick text you all these things I did so that Dana can talk about them openly. And it was a, it was a bad thing. It was a bad deal. But I, you know, we're taught that in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, it's faithful. We're, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what I wanted to work. And of course, we are forgiven by God when we confess. Um, But James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another and you'll be healed. And so that vertical, I wanted to be healed vertically. Uh, I was forgiven vertically and then I needed to be healed horizontally with people around me Intimacy was, to me was kind of a foreign concept. Somebody said to me, you know, think about it as into me see. Like someone being able to know everything about you and still respecting you. That's what yada is. And that's a pretty high goal. And if you don't tell someone, then you're lonely tonight. If you haven't told someone everything about you, you're lonely, and it's because you are all alone. And that's not how the church works. It'd be nice if it did, if we could do it ourselves, but it's what brings us together. And um, we need to talk to one another. Now, I will say this. Uh, one of the things that I will caution you on is like, Troy said to me last night, because I was all nervous. I don't really, this is like the fifth time we've done this, and so I'm all worked up, and, and uh, you know, uh, 
he said, it'll be okay. People will relate to you. The men will relate to you or whatever. And I said, I think there's a lot of men in there. will be like, dang, my wife's going to look at me after the service and say, ask me a bunch of questions. <laughs> and um, We don't want you to do that, ladies. We don't want you to do that. <laughs> from, a, from, a, from a counseling and a, and a clinical point of view, what you don't want is staggered disclosure, which is this thing where a guy confesses or somebody's caught and humiliated and it is almost impossible to confess everything at once because it's just almost too hard to be that humiliated. And so you confess and you confess and you cry and then your wife says, you know, is that all? And you're like, yes. And I think I can... She doesn't know, need to know the rest because it would be horrible. And then you end that and you have shame all over you again. And then you go back and, mm-hmm. and that's not what we want you to do uh, if you're struggling with this. We want you men to tell other godly men and text them before you leave this sanctuary so you don't chicken out. And women, you need an ambulance too. So you need to tell other women And as long as you're making it a secret, you really are vulnerable to the enemy who walks around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I don't know if you've ever seen a lion hunt, but they don't go after the crowd. They go after the one that's alone. So don't be caught alone. And we want to just challenge you that before the end of tonight, before you lay your head on the pillow, to text a friend and say, I have something I really need to get raw and honest with you about. And they may be within the next week or so. You, bring, you come together as a couple and you begin fighting this together with the power of community. Listen, Christianity is not a solo sport. Someone led you to Christ. Someone discipled you and taught you how to practice the disciplines of the faith. And when we get to these ground zero moments, somebody walks us through the darkness back into the light of Christ. So don't try to do this alone. But I can promise you this, that we have found God's redemption to be very thorough. Very thorough. In fact, those red chairs, they were expensive, yes, they were. which was a bummer because I wanted to put them on Facebook Marketplace, but I couldn't get myself to do them. that. I hated those chairs. But after a few years of healing under our belts, um, I felt God pushing me. I felt God's spirit say, if I can handle you two and the mess you were, don't you think I can handle the chairs? And so out of obedience to the Lord, I brought those chairs back out, and um, I have watched the Lord redeem them. As first, they were a place where I sat, and I prayed, and I talked to the Lord about our marriage. Then they were a place where Bob and I sat, and we made eye contact, and talked, and loved each other, and laughed. Then they became a place where we counseled other couples who were hurting. Then they became a place where we welcomed grandbabies. And as um, I released this book, and we'd love for you all to leave with one tonight. They're out there. We'd love for you to just take one. You don't need to um, pay for it or anything. Just take one. You might need it, not need it, but maybe you know a friend who does. Um, The week this book came out, we came in the house with our grandbabies, who at the time were about three years old, and they plopped up into those chairs when we walked in the house. They began talking and chatting, and we snapped a picture, because that looks to us like redemption. God can handle it all. But let me read to you something as Darren comes to pray us out. Um, I never could have imagined how thorough God's redemption would be when I said, here are the chairs, fix them too. Make them new, make them better. 
And I asked my daughter-in-law, not knowing what had happened in those red chairs, knowing we had gone through some hard things, but not knowing about those red chairs, to write a foreword to a book I wrote for mothers. And listen to what she wrote. Only God could have possibly orchestrated this. Just a couple of years ago, Bob and Dana opened their home to Robbie and me when we brought our beautiful twin baby girls home from the hospital. Bob and Robbie cared for our girls late into the night. Dana woke up very early to help me with the first bottle feed of the day. We sat in two cozy red chairs snuggled up close to her fireplace. For me, these chairs are holy ground, a precious place where I encountered the radical and undying love of Jesus. Dana and I held my baby girls and talked and laughed and prayed and cried. She listened to my heart and spoke truth into it. Truth about my Savior who sustained the lives we held in precarious times. Truth about my girls. Truth about me. When you pick up this book, dear reader, you are cozying up in Dana's red chair in her living room. You are laughing and crying and receiving truth from her heart to yours and the immense love of our own Savior, Jesus Christ. May God's redemption in your life be as thorough as it has been in ours. Thank you. What I uh, hope that you take away from here tonight is hope. Even if you're thinking, man, I can't tell anybody this. You know, the question, like when you see somebody like Bob say, hey, this is what I did. Like, do you respect him more or respect him less? Right? And the answer is more. Like, we, you know, Christopher Roman and I talk about that. Like, when you're working with someone who's in struggle, like, when you're honest, it actually, the, the greatest fear is I'm going to be honest, and then they're going to leave me, and I'm going to be all alone. And the answer uh, most times is not that at all. It's the exact opposite, that, that there's a respect for that. Like, that conversation with, with Troy, like, Troy hangs up with Bob going, man, I actually, you know, you respect him more, not less. So I hope that you are infused with courage and that the Holy Spirit moves in all of your lives tonight. This book, uh, I had a chance to read it before it came out. I told Dan at that point, I got the, the absolute honor of, of writing an endorsement for it, that this is the kind of book that's going to save marriages for decades. And the courage that they displayed for that, to be, to be the ones to go first, one of the greatest ways that we could honor them for their courage is to have that courage in our own lives as well. So I ask you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. Um, they didn't come here to shill books. They came here to preach the gospel. They came here to give you the hope that God can save all of us and can set all of us free. Uh, I made it to 30 years in our marriage, right? But not bad. And I can tell you that it's not easy, but at 30 years in that there's an intimacy, there's a yada that my wife and I have that we didn't have it 20 years or 10 years. And so, I mean, this is somebody specifically a word for you tonight. Hold on. Don't tap out yet. Push through because there's something on the other side that is so beautiful, that is so precious, that is so God uh, that I know that he wants that for you. So Heavenly Father, I pray that in this room right now that you're moving in people's hearts, you're moving in the hearts of men for courage and for women to have the same kind of courage Lord, you love every single one of us. You created something and the enemy wanted to use it for harm. But you, Lord, I know you can turn even in that our lives and use it for our good. I pray that in this room right now that that's, the seeds of that are being planted. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. 
Amen. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having the courage to sit in the room even with it. This is not a topic that most churches are going to cover, but man, we're either going to let Netflix disciple us or we're going to let Jesus, and I choose Jesus. So God bless you.